Welcome to the Research Culture Uncovered podcast, where in every episode we explore what is research culture and what should it be. You'll hear thoughts and opinions from a range of contributors to help you change research culture into what you want it to be. Hi, it's Nick. And for those who don't know me yet, I'm Open Research Advisor, advisor based in the library here at the University of Leeds. You're joining us in season three of the Research Culture Uncovered podcast. We'll be speaking to colleagues from both the University of Leeds and from other universities and organisations about open research, what it is, how it's practised in different disciplines and how it relates to research culture. If you haven't already, you can catch up with season one, which was an introduction to the podcast and to my co-hosts, and season two with my colleague Tony Bromley, who was in conversation with a number of presenters from the REDS Conference of 2022. That's the Researcher Education and Development Scholarship International Conference held here in Leeds. But now I'd like to introduce my guest for today, my colleague Kelly Lloyd. Kelly is currently completing an ESRC-funded PhD in the Leeds Institute of Health Sciences on the topic of investigating decision-making in cancer preventative therapy. Kelly is also one of the organisers of the Reproducibility Journal Club here at Leeds, which is how I first met you, I think. Yes, it was. Kelly. Uh, so welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And thank you for taking time out. I think you've been a bit busy lately. I so... have been a bit busy, so at least. <laughs> so the question is, have you finished your thesis yet? Yes, so I'm a final year PhD student and I'm happy to report that I submitted my PhD thesis last Thursday. Congratulations. Thank you. So um, what happens next? I'm not having a PhD yes. myself. I'm not totally sure you get a... Yeah, so there are more steps. So quite a few friends have asked me, do you feel relieved? And in many ways, no, because <laughs> it's not done yet. So my next stop is um, I'll do a viva defence. So that will be end of February, mm-hmm. where I'll have an exam with an internal and external examiner who are going to go through my thesis and I need to defend it, essentially. And then I'll find out then if I pass and I'm a doctor and if I need to do corrections and if they're major or minor. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, not over yet. <laughs> Okay, well, good luck with that. Thank um, you. Um, are you nervous about the defence or? Yes, yeah. <laughs> but um, I'm sure it'll be fine. Okay, yeah, well, good luck with that. I mean, as I say, um, I think I met you through the Reproducibility Journal Club. We'll come on to that in a bit more detail yeah. perhaps as we go. Um, but through reproducibility, and certainly from you personally, Kelly, I've learned an awful lot about open search in general and pre-registration in particular. Again, we'll come on to, I mm-hmm. think, pre-registration um what that is and you yeah. sort of you can explain that to us in a little bit more detail but perhaps could start by talking about how and why you became interested in urban research perhaps mm-hmm. um with reference my, to your background your academic background and, yes so my origin story yeah, yeah your origin story quite, uh, superhero you're, you're casting yourself as a superhero well I, I was gonna say in urban research but not not quite my i'm enthusiastic um So how to start it? So my background is my undergraduate degree was in psychology, but I didn't learn about open research then. It was actually um, when I was doing my master's in social research. So to give a bit of context, I was doing a one plus three master's and PhD. So I got funding for the PhD, but they also provided funding for me to do a master's at first. And for this master's, um, I still had contact with my PhD supervisor. And I had an assignment for my master's where I had to review a book um, and critique it and discuss the book for this essay. 
And my supervisor wanted me to read uh, Chris Chambers' book, The Seven Deadly Sins of Psychology, which I found fascinating. I've never heard of open research or open science before. And this was like my first introduction to it. And I just thought it was so interesting. Have you read it? I've read parts of it, I confess. I haven't read the whole thing. Oh, read it all. I loved it. Um, And so, yeah, from there, I was really interested in open research. Just from reading that book, I learned a lot. So I will say about the book, it's called The Seven Deadly Sins of Psychology. But don't let the title put you off. I think it really can, a lot of it, be applied to so many disciplines. It's just that Chris Chambers himself is from a psychology background. So it's definitely applicable to a lot of disciplines. And it was from there that I got interested. And then I got asked to help set up lead reproducibility. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, you say that I am aware of the book and of Chris mm-hmm. Chambers, but... He's a psychologist and you started with psychology. I mean, there seems to be yeah. an awful lot of psychologists leading the charge for open research. Why, why do you think that is? Is there a particular reason for that or is it? I think the reason is, so yes, open science, a lot of the discussions came, at least the movement, how it sort of is at the moment, a lot of that came from psychology. And I think a big part of that was just because a lot of psychology studies, really landmark studies that were really important in a discipline, people tried to replicate them and they couldn't be replicated. Mm-hmm. So it became this big thing that psychology can't be replicated and what are the issues and that sort of bred into the discussions of open science. But I mean, it's not just psychology. I think there is a perception that's just psychology. It's not. And there are other disciplines that science disciplines, I guess, because it's been replicated. So there's other scientific uh, disciplines that have tried to replicate landmark studies and also haven't been able to do it. So in cancer biology, so there was a big replication project for cancer biology and they tried to replicate a bunch of landmark cancer biology studies. And they found that firstly, it was really hard because there wasn't enough detail in the methods. like there wasn't openly shared protocols, a lot of detail missing, a lot of data wasn't shared. And when they could replicate it, more often than not, they did not find the same results. Mm. So it really is applicable to a lot of disciplines. I just think it needs to be sort of communicated from the key people in those disciplines. And it's just at the moment, psychologists have been the ones mostly talking about it. So I think researchers from other disciplines but they think oh that's not to do with me because mm. there's a psychologist talking about it yeah and, and i mean in the context of cancer biology i mean that yeah. really brings it home doesn't it because that's important i mean medicine is what's important yes. in all sorts of disciplines but yeah. medicine is really obviously we, we you want to go to the doctor and know that the treatment, the works. treatment is based on studies that yes. can be replicated it is much more scandalous in medical research when these things can't be replicated or where conflicts of interest have resulted in things maybe selective reporting and yeah yeah well we'll come perhaps on to some of those specific examples but you know You've talked about reproducibility already, you know, and the, and the concept of replicating research results. Mm. But I mean, how would you define open research in your fields? I guess you've got more than one field with your. Yes, background. so I have forgot to mention that my actual field now, as you mentioned earlier, is Leeds Institute of Health Sciences. So now I'm in much more of a health research, applied health research background. So I guess. Open research means to me about having the whole cycle of research 
as open as possible. But I also really appreciate that it can't always be completely open. So I, for example, do a lot of qualitative research and that can be quite tricky because you could release the interview data, for example, but then maybe the participants be identified and you've got to make sure the the best interests of the participants are there and their ethics are respected. And maybe then you would redact a lot of the identifiable data from your interview transcript and then share it. And then you might redact so much information that the interview transcript is basically useless yeah. and there is no point sharing it in the first place. So it can be quite complicated. Um, but you mentioned one medicine as well. Well, yeah, but just uh, just on that, because um, we did actually work with you on a mm. data set, didn't we? Uh, yes. Did we? yes. And, and you, in that case, as I recall, you didn't show all the transcripts, is that right? So I, I did one of my um, PhD studies, it's a qualitative study, and I recruited patients with a particular genetic condition and healthcare professionals across different professions, such as pharmacists, GPs, and genetic counsellors. And I shared, I didn't share all the transcripts. So for example, pharmacists, I only recruited for pharmacists and quite a few recruited from social media where it could be, it could have been obvious who they were basically. So I thought for safety, mm -hmm. I'm not going to include these really small groups. So I only shared data from people with limp syndrome and, and GPs who consented to their data being shared. And I went through all the transcripts and redacted anything that could be identifiable. Hmm. And I think- Even though you had permission, so they'd given, they'd yes. given their consent, but you were, there's still an ethical consideration there. I guess maybe how I phrased it, because hmm. I said that the interview transcripts would be in a restricted access repository and that people won't be able to identify them because I'm going to remove identifiable yeah. information. So that's what they consented to. I guess you could do it where they consent to something different. Yeah. yeah. No, I'm just interested because, you know, we've, we've talked about yeah. this. It, it is an issue, I think, especially mm -hmm. in qualitative research, you know, making sure that your the ethics is your good side and yeah. you're actually showing what you can, et cetera. And I wonder if I redacted so much data and identifiable information as I mentioned earlier did I make of my interview transcripts that I shared essentially kind of useless yeah, yeah, yeah. because there's just so much important data I took out potentially yeah yeah, yeah. um so that's data sharing as mm -hmm. part of open um research open science um you mentioned methodology and the fact that that's not always sufficient is that an, yes is that a big issue in Yes, it is quite a big issue in lots of disciplines. So the fact that when you submit a paper to a journal, you only have a limited word count. So a lot if you read the methods of a paper, it's going to be very hard for you to replicate that because there's only so much detail they could put in. To replicate something, you need a lot of detail. So there's a lot, there's a big push really to be both sharing the protocols, like the full protocols of these studies, and even better if you can pre-register it, um, which we can get onto as well. But I think it's interesting that this big issue with not, like I mentioned the cancer biology studies couldn't be replicated. And a lot of times it's just because there was not enough detail given on these studies and there weren't any protocols. Um, so that made it incredibly difficult to redo the study. And it's interesting, I saw this guidance on writing medical papers that somebody shared in my department 
And at one point, the guidance was in this paper that said, you know, how to write a paper, a medical paper. It said, don't the method section focus on the sections that people read the most. People don't really read the method, so spend less time on yeah. it. Which is just for me, I thought baffling because I was thinking, yes, okay, people might find them boring, but they're essentially the most important part of the paper. How did you actually do it? So I think that's quite baffling. Well, that puts me in mind uh, of a recent conversation I had with Dr. Alex Freeman, mm -hmm. um, who you may know is uh, she's the inventor of a platform called Octopus, a new open research platform, and she talks a lot about narrative in. Mm. research and how important narrative is to the detriment of science sometimes you know you're trying to tell a story yeah and that, that's sort of the same sort of thing it's like well okay it might be boring but this is crucial to actually to to science you know Literally, and, yeah and it's that part of the problem we have culturally I suppose you know this is a research culture podcast in terms of of, of how important it's become to actually have your papers cited etc which isn't necessarily about the quality of the science no so it's just as you mentioned it's just not it's a culture thing it's not a priority and this culture is also when you're getting papers like that that say oh don't spend too much time on the methods it doesn't matter so that is the culture and it is as you mentioned the most important part I don't know where I was going with that next point but just that it is such an important part that we culturally we don't teach people to spend enough time on describing and also I guess it comes back to that issue that if you have a limited word count mm. you, that might be the thing you cut but I would always recommend that if you need to cut the method you should be putting more detail online to a pre-registration protocol or just the full protocol somewhere so there is more information for someone to go to. And I don't want to put you too much on the spot, yeah. but I remember you talking, uh, I think, recently about your the, the challenges for yourself of actually fully documenting that methodology. It's not easy, is it, I don't think, to actually, you know, I don't know if you come back mm. to your own methodology and how, is it sufficient? Um, yes, there is there is stuff that you can forget. I've forgotten, off, I've forgotten what exactly mm. it was I said, but yeah, there's lots of times I think, oh, I could have, I should have said that. Oh, that was it. It was doing a logistic regression sorry very complicated term for that people don't know stats but I was doing this regression in my study that I pre-registered and um, it's actually a registered report which you can also get onto and it was just realizing that I didn't ever say which variables so when you have a variable you have two levels and one will be the reference category and which one is the reference category does literally affect the result and I realized I never specified that mm. and no one asked. And yeah, yeah, it's yeah. all this detail missing that I was like, oh, I guess actually I, you can manipulate that yeah. a bit and try and get like keep rerunning p-value um, tests. I wasn't going to. I just left it how it was. But it's that realization that there's loads of small analytic choices yeah. that are really minor and they can still affect it that maybe you forget to even put in a protocol yeah. that you've done it. Yeah. So, I mean, this perhaps brings us around quite nicely to, well, you've mentioned two terms, which, uh, as I say, I've learned myself from you, but I still get a bit confused with registered reports mm -hmm. versus pre-registration. Maybe you can give us a bit of a crash course in what pre-registration means and how that relates to registered report. Are they kind yeah. of the same thing? Are they? So they're all the same under the umbrella. So the umbrella is pre-registration and registered reports is a version of that. 
with pre-registration in general, the general term is that you've designed, say, your study protocol, your plan, so your method and analysis plan, and you put that somewhere public and timestamps for somebody to, so someone can see that this was timestamped this date, um, and it's publicly available, and then you can start the study. And you can start data collection and analyze the results. And then you carry out the study how you said you're going to based on pre-registration. And that's meant to help with things like selective reporting or harking, which is changing hypothesis after results are known, or data dredging, or it's also termed p-hacking. Mm-hmm. So keep running statistical results until you find um, a significant result. And the idea is if you keep running statistical tests, eventually you'll find a p-value, a significant p-value for something eventually. And this pre-registration can help with that. So what I do is I pre-register my studies on open science framework, then I start and do the study. And when I come to write up for publication, I link that pre-registration DOI into my publication and I say I pre-registered the study. It's here. And that can also really help with lots of things. So transparency um, and things like that. But also be quite helpful if, say, a you submit your paper to a journal and the peer reviewers say, no, um, I want you to do it like this instead. You could come back and say, well, I pre-registered it mm-hmm. this I'm carrying out my plan. So it kind of backs you up to say, I'm not going to completely do a bunch of statistical tests because this is what I set out to do and I'm not going to just keep running new tests. Um, And also I mentioned that you put it onto a public repository. So it is a public repository, it's timestamped. I know that some people get quite worried about scooping, which is where you put your pre-registration online and people think that someone will then do the study before you do and publish it, which I think is really unlikely. But if you are worried about that, you can embargo the pre-registration. So when the embargo lifts, and um, say when you've published the study, there's still the timestamp there when you originally timestamped it, but no one else could see it until the embargo was lifted. Hmm. So registered report is just sort of a next step further with pre-registration where it is pre-registration format, but it's linked to a journal. So it's a publication format. And I did it actually for my final PhD study, which is quite exciting. So I know how it works, but I can also talk about how I actually did it for my own research. So I submitted um, stage one pre-registration to a journal. So that was the first step, which is I detailed the introduction, the methods and analysis plan. So essentially half of a publication. Mm. And I submitted that to the journal. And then the peer reviewers reviewed the stage one register report or protocol, and they fed back on that. Um, and the idea is basically, you firstly, you can get feedback on your study before you've actually started data collection and started recruitment at a vital time when you can actually make those changes. Um, so at that time you can make those changes and another thing is the fact that um, if it's accepted then you get in principle acceptance from the journal Mm -hmm. where the journal has committed to publishing the full study um, as long as you either adhere to the protocol or if there are any deviations these are transparent and justified and I think also mostly 
uh, in all cases that you should also get permission from the editors and peer reviewers to make those changes mm -hmm. rather than saying at the end oh we change loads but it's transparent because they you need permission for it and like a justification so for my study I submitted it um to a journal they gave in principle acceptance and then I went off and did the study I recruited participants I analyzed the data everything I said I was going to do worked, so I didn't make any changes so I basically followed out my my plan like a recipe I did it quite quickly actually once I had the data I analyzed it quite quickly and I wrote up the rest of the paper so the introduction methods couldn't change mm -hmm. apart from tense changes where I said you know we will do this I changed it to we did this mm. that was the only things I could change and then I basically wrote the rest of the paper so I wrote the results and the discussion um, and I gave it back to the journal and I said look I've done what I said I was going to do that you already approved and they went yeah that's great <laughs> and I actually didn't even you can get more feedback at this point so there is stage two peer review um, and they can come back more queries I actually found that mine were happy yeah. and so done I mean that I was going to say when you talk about peer registration that sounds like quite a lot of work mm. but effectively you it's stuff that you'd write anyway just a different point in the process maybe I, I would argue it's front-loading the work. So firstly, the pre-registration, people think that's a lot of work, but I would assume for most studies you have a protocol somewhere, a plan, an ethics application. So you've got something somewhere that says what you're going to do, I would have thought. Um, I mean, I know you could do very exploratory analyses, but you would still have an idea of what you're going to do. So you've just put that in the public repository. I don't think it takes long, especially if you have, like I said, an ethics application, because you already have to detail the study. Um, with the register report as well, it is a lot of front-loading the work. For both of it, it's front-loading the work. So it's like a recipe to follow. So once I already had it there and my supervisors are happy with it and we're ready to go, once I had like recruited participants and analysed the data, it was pretty easy. I just did what I said I was going to do. So it front loads it a lot and it can really help to know that your your study is accepted while you're recruiting. It takes a lot of pressure off. So I took it back to the journal. It was accepted as I thought it would be. That took a lot of pressure off, especially when completing a PhD and doing alternative thesis by publication. So that really helps. And oh, also, it really helps when you find null results, so negative results, because in research they like you know, that's a big thing that people want flashy, positive, significant results. And the big thing with registered reports is this journal is committed to publishing based off my methods and how good the methods are. So it doesn't matter if I come out and say, oh, well, the methods were good, but I found null findings because they've already committed to publishing it. That takes a lot of pressure off if you get that scenario. Yeah, that was something else that um, Alice Freeman talked about yeah. in the context of Octopus and the fact that there's no, because everything's... That, that again, culturally, we're so driven by positive, mm. well, I say positive results, but results that are finding a, yeah. an effect when actually science doesn't work like that often. You, no. you could, you, could uh, you know, and that's perfectly valid to find. Yeah, I think it was, a, oh, I, I'm going to quote it badly, but I think there was a study where, I can't remember the exact statistics, but it was where they found that between five to 10% of study outcomes or publications in traditional publication format, published null findings. But with the registered report format, it was much more around 60, 70% maybe are publishing null findings. Wow, that's a dramatic difference. But 
Yeah. Just so I'm clear then, so you talk about pre-registration and registry report, would a registry report be public also or that's just for the journal? I forgot that point, yes, that's a really good point. Um, so when I got the um, stage one registered report, when they approved it, as soon as you approve it, they say they want it on public repository. Yeah. So I uploaded that to Open Science Framework. So in exactly the same way as it? Yeah, the steps are really similar. It's just that actually the registered report, um, I had to guarantee publication. Yeah. And that was, yeah, any researchers out there will know that when you try and publish a study, sometimes it can take years. If one journal hangs on to it for six months and then says no, then it goes to another journal and hang on to it for six months and they say no, that's a year gone by. So for actually for my this study, um, my final one that was a registered report, I got um, the study up and running in March this year and then the full study was accepted for publication in September so it was really quick overall and the, but and again on, on registered reports so you mentioned that you know, not all journals do this though do they always no. is it quite few and far between is it does it vary by discipline as well how many is it now I think maybe 300 journals offer it in some formats either they always offer it or one-off specials and might be slightly off with that, it updates quite a lot. But the vast, vast majority are in psychology. So this is one of the few where I submitted uh, the British Journal of General Practice was one of the few journals that offers in medicine a registered report format that weren't many others. I'm trying to think of what the others are called, but might be one or two others, or maybe more than that. But for me, I felt like there wasn't many options. So if this journal said no, there's maybe one more journal I could try, and that was kind of it. So it's a bit limiting when you work in medical and health research. Is it growing though? Do you think, or is there an awareness that it needs to grow, or is it again? Is it a cultural the... thing? The fact that you know there's not really the the incentive for journals to do this. Mm. I think it's getting there very very slowly. Mm. Some people argue it's so slow it's not progressing enough. Um. Well, the journal I mentioned, British Journal of General Practice, only introduced registered reports in the last couple of years. Mm. Um, I think the incentives are complicated. I think there is incentives from the journals that they there's misunderstandings what registered reports are. So some people think it's a very positive, uh, positivist framework. Um, it doesn't account for exploratory research, but there are different mm. formats and it can count for all types of research. So there's misunderstandings of what it is. I think there's an assumption it'll be a lot of work. And I do also know, I swear someone, some journals have mentioned that even when they did have it, people don't submit to it. Yeah. Because I think there's also a culture issue that there's only so many researchers who know about it and then so many researchers who are going to submit their study like that. So... It's a mixture. Can I just ask, um, with I suppose the one thing that I'm really not clear on as well, and not not a concept we haven't discussed today, but I was talking with a, a colleague, Dork, who I think you might know, my colleague mm -hmm. Dork, who was doing some of the case studies, is preprint. Pre so preprint. Yeah. How does that interact with pre-registration or registry reports in particular? Can, can you still preprint or? Oh yeah, you can still preprint. Um, preprint is always oh it depends on the journals regular um, what the journal says about preprint so preprints is where 
you put your manuscript online. So before it's been peer reviewed by the journal, you put it online in preprint service, everyone to read. And that is fine as long as what the journal thinks preprints are. So if a journal think, says preprints are fine because we don't count this as prior publication, then it's fine, even registered reports. And I would assume a journal often for registered reports would hopefully be okay with preprints. I think any journal any journal that's not okay with preprints, they tend to be quite outdated about what they think it is. Yeah. I suppose I'm just trying to figure out the timeline because yeah. if, if you were I mean, might you pre-register and then pre-print and then a register report and then the full I mean, how would how would the timeline work, I suppose? I guess in a way I pre-printed, but it was more pre-registration, stage one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I guess with stage two, it's probably if I was going to pre-print it, I didn't actually pre-print my last study. Um it's because I'm considering more press release stuff mm. and that can be a bit more complicated with pre-prints. Yeah, yeah. But I probably, if I was going to preprint it, I would have probably done it at the stage where I submitted the stage two manuscript to the journal before they'd comment on it. I probably would have preprinted it then. Yeah. Okay. No, that's. Uh, but it is more yeah. complicated. I mean, there's this, yeah, I'm just thinking out loud. So, mm. you know, and again, it's always interesting for yeah. me not being an academic, not being a researcher, just trying to figure out. But it is more interesting because preprint is before peer review, but then registered reports have got peer review at the stage yeah, one yeah, stage yeah, so yeah. how does it work yeah. it is more complicated when you think yeah. about it yeah yeah no it just uh just occurred to me but uh no that's great thank you i mean we've already touched on some i think of the barriers to open research but do you think there are any other particular barriers i mean this the cultural aspects is perhaps the overriding barrier are there at the moment or yes i think i th- i think two things so it's the fact that open science was sort of born out of discussions with quantitative psychology research. So a lot of the discussions could apply to other disciplines, but I think it's basically people think it doesn't apply to them because they do, they don't do psychology or they don't do quantitative research, they do qualitative or they do humanities. And I do think actually a lot of it can be applied to other disciplines. So you could, for example, pre-register qualitative research it doesn't do the same thing as quantitative where you're trying to reduce things like harking and p-hacking because you don't have that in qualitative research but there are other benefits and it's just similar to what I said before actually one of the benefits is that journals are quite restrictive Mm -hmm. on their word counts and a pre-registration is a really good place where you can kind of show in depth what you are trying to do and you can link to this because qualitative research also suffers from a lack of transparency it's really hard to work out what the person did and it can be real beneficial to actually know how people got from a to b mm-hmm. and it could help new qualitative researchers like train and learn by reading those papers and maybe when you share date other data it's not the interview data maybe it's the coding frameworks and the codes you've used and things like that that mm-hmm. other sort of aspects of data outside of interviews that you could share and it could really help future researchers and I just think a lot of it needs to be discussed and reimagined from the people in those disciplines so how it applies to humanities it needs to be pushed by people in humanities and I've seen um, there are papers coming out saying about open research in humanities and humanities researchers are talking about it are 
there aren't going to be people. I'm not not a huge amount of people, but yeah, yeah. open science but, is not a huge amount of people anyway. <laughs> but that, well, that's the point, isn't it? I mean, why isn't it? I mean, it, obviously, people like yourself are mm. very um, passionate and enthusiastic about open science and for the for the for the good of science. I think, but do we do do we need to do more to incentivize it? I mean, your people are people. As a psychologist, mm. you know, what, what, why, why should I, as a researcher, I've got to pay the bills, I've got to publish. It's not something that's maybe incentivized enough at the moment. No, I think it's hard and people are already really overworked. It's why people have been striking. And it it's hard to say people who already have a lot on their plate, you have to learn all these new skills. I think it has to be introduced really early into education, such as masters, but if it could, even better if it's undergraduate. And the earlier it's introduced, the better. So I started learning about this in my masters and continued into my PhD, but it got a lot harder to keep up with the latest things in open science and research during the last year of my PhD. It gets harder, and the skills and techniques I learned, it was easier at the beginning. And again, it will be easier again if you teach the undergrad students and the masters, hmm. but that comes to a complicated issue. Who's going to teach them? Yeah, well, that, that's the subject of another podcast I'm hoping to do with a colleague, yeah. um, you know, Dr. Maddie Pownall. Yes, um, so, we really, um, that's going to be really interesting. So, yeah, we, we, um, we're yet to speak to, to Maddie, uh, but um, very interested in some of the work yeah. that she's doing. She's about amazing tra- work. Trying to embed some of this stuff in yeah. the undergraduate curriculum, because they are, of course, the research of tomorrow. Yes, 100%. But then it comes to a complicated thing of Maddie, Maddie's doing amazing work in psychology. What we need to push it through in other disciplines. But who's going to do it in humanities? Yeah, yeah. Because you need each person who understands the language of that discipline to, to train in it. Because there's no point in me coming into humanities and talking about it because yeah. I don't understand humanities. Yeah. And then, I mean, I was talking to another colleague um, recently about that and the fact that, you know, maybe humanities scholars feel like it's been foisted on them from, from the STEM disciplines. Yeah, that that's never what you want. It needs to be. In an ideal world, and this is so much harder to actually do, it needs to be coming from the people, like the, the leaders and the early career researchers in those disciplines who are going to reimagine what open research is for their own disciplines in an ideal world. But then it's it's that culture as well. You, someone in humanities might feel like it's just them coming in trying to say how we how to do our research, and that's not pleasant. And those can be a lot of barriers, the culture barriers to open research is how people perceive it hmm. so I don't know I don't know how much you've seen on Twitter but there's also a big barrier that people don't like open, well tends to be more open science because there can be a bullying culture with yeah, it yeah. with a lot of so called broken broken, broken science yeah. I really recommend people listen to the podcast to read the broken science piece by Kirsty Whittaker and Olivia yeah, I'll put the I'll put the links in the yes. show notes really really good paper um I think it's a blog post but it's really really good and that's a really big issue so I've seen it where um gatekeepers isn't like gatekeepers. anything there's academic gatekeepers or now there's um uh, and it can be gendered and yeah it can't it broken science as Kirsty and Olivia are discussing you don't have to be a bro or a man mm. um but in all honesty it does tend to often be white men who are in 
positions of power already bullying people when they say this study is rubbish and they critique it and they're really mean on Twitter and that often is from an early career researcher and so that's what people's perception is of open science if you saw that why would you want to engage in those discussions um this doesn't put me off it because what it doesn't put me off open science because I don't want to be pushed out I'd rather keep keep us all in and try and reimagine it can I ask if you've experienced no I haven't actually do you you have any colleagues that have experienced I I haven't experienced I'm not sure if colleagues have but it is kind of my worst nightmare to put something out there and everyone on Twitter just rip into it and I think I'd cry so when it happens to people I feel really feel for them Um, and I'm really scared of it happening to me which also means that you won't want to share your I do want to share my data and everything but the more you share the more you open yourself up to criticism and that's really scary Um, and whether Twitter is the best medium especially now is another question (laughs) that is another question so that can be really scary and I think it's just Again, reimagining it. So I'm really proud of a paper that I wrote with Maddie. She was the leader of author on it about sort of the perspectives of open science um, as early career, uh, feminist early career researchers and sort of our, our discussion on what the barriers can be and how you can sort of reimagine open science. And that's what I think we need, rather than letting these broken people take it over. cuts across culture as well, doesn't it? Yes. It's not just yes, about it's, culture. it's about the culture of the academy and, uh, yes. and, and um, gender disparity pay and all, all sorts research of other things. Science and research is just on the existing academic structure, exactly. which are already yeah. uh, just already favouring like Western, like white uh, uh, men and everything. It's already yeah. built on those existing power imbalances. Yeah, yeah. No, there's lots of interesting discussion about that and I hope to cover that in the discussion mm. in the podcast. But um, I suppose you know, that you go soon, but um, not that actually you've, as you said, you've now submitted your, I, your thesis, so we don't need to worry too much. Of, I was that word. application when I get in, but yes. <laughs> um, but, you know, in terms of, we've already touched a little bit on how we can support and promote the adoption of open research practices. And we talked earlier about reproducibility, mm. which is a big part of that, I think. Can you tell us a bit about reproducibility, your role in it? And uh, I've certainly learned a lot from attending reproducibility sessions, both here and at other universities. So what is it and how does it work? So reproducibility is a journal club that originally started at Oxford, University of Oxford, by early career researchers who were quite interested in open science. And they really felt that they needed this sort of community to discuss papers in this area. And it's expanded since then. So it's gone to think, I mean, this is probably outdated statistics, but it's spread to over 140 institutes in over 27 different countries. And we have one in Leeds. Mm. So it started in 2018. I was one of the first groups as well that started it here. And we basically, we meet, we have breaks, we're on a break at the moment because I need to finish my PhD, but when we're up and running, we have a meeting every month virtually where we sort of, we assign a topic or a paper, but you don't have to read the paper. If you want to read the paper, great, but we will summarise the paper as well. And sometimes we have guest speakers on an open research topic and then we have room for discussion. So we've had previous sessions on qualitative pre-registration and we had a guest speaker and we've had them on preprints, the controversies in preprints. So there was a lot of controversies with um, COVID and people putting preprints online that 
apparently people said they weren't very good studies they wouldn't have passed peer review it's hard to know because a lot of bad studies get through peer review but that's kind of the discussion um the origins of open science um we've done quantitative data sharing we've done stuff on more quantitative stuff like R um programming and so many different things we've tried to make it so it's inclusive to loads of different disciplines and and try and do discipline specific things as well we had a geography session and we had a open science researcher from geography i don't know anything about geography but that's really interesting and try and have things over different disciplines and have multidisciplinary discussions and you know as i said it's informal about maybe 20 minutes 30 minutes of presentations and the rest is just informal discussions, questions in the chat, put your hands up or we can all just have a chat and see how we feel, what our opinions are. So you can learn a lot from it, really. I think. Yeah, well, I would, I would certainly vouch for that. I mean, I've been along and, I've, you know, a lot of what I've learned in my role mm-hmm. is from, from the booth, the tea session. Um, and you just encourage people to to come along once they, they, they see them advertise on their Twitter and, and there's no you don't have to see yeah yeah you don't have to speak or ask question and like I said if you you don't have to say, ask a question that's fine you can list the discussion if you have a question but you're a bit shy just put it in the group chat and I'll read it out it'll be fine and yeah everyone can sort of have a nice time actually on that note they're on a break at the moment, but we're hoping to get back started up in February. So do check it out. But also, if you're interested in helping out, um, please drop me an email. I don't know if you could put my email. Yeah, I'll put I'll put contact details. Maybe even Twitter as well if you have yeah, to. I'll discuss that with you if you if you want to. But you you and uh, put links. And yeah, we're always looking for yeah. volunteers, early career researchers. I think it's a great thing for the CV as well because open research is becoming more and more important. So if you want to help out running sessions please let me know and we just emphasize don't we i think the the value of community i mean as i say yes. i met you through reproducibility i've learned an awful lot from you on the on, on, on research maybe even you from the library as well oh i have yeah in terms of, you know and, that, and that's that's the collaborative nature yeah. of open there's lots of things i didn't know um um the uh licensing like yeah. creative comment license no idea about that really important data sharing there's a lot i didn't know that i learned from the library well and that's the way the way i always put it is um you know talk about the fact that the nature of open research and open science is about collaboration yes and we can all achieve a lot more through yeah. collaboration community so uh yeah no i strongly encourage people to to join the reproducibility journal club yeah it's a great way to start with the community i mean there's open lunch as well your sessions which are really good i guess reproducibility is quite a it's a smaller more informal discussion that'd be yeah. quite good if you yeah. want to really get to know people yeah, yeah might we ever do it in person again i mean you said it's virtual because we yes. for the pandemic we did i should probably set up a hybrid one it is on my to-do list i'm just not very good with technology mm-hmm. So this could go very horribly wrong. <laughs> and we do have a teapot, of course. We've got we have. So we've got the teapot. It's, it's just sat in the cupboard. From, uh, I know. Uh, I, knew, I used to set up a hybrid to... one, but I'm terrified of the tech side of trying to do both. No, no, that's fair enough. No, that's so, as I say, just to reiterate that, really encourage people to join reproducibility. Um, but thank you very much, Kelly. I suppose the, 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 just before I let you go, I mean, what's, what's next for you now that you have finished your... Yes. PhD and uh, and assuming you get through your vibe, I'm no doubt that you will. And uh, what what what's next? Are you staying at Leeds? Yes, I have um, a job interview on Thursday, so for a job in my department, and I'm also writing an ESRC fellowship application for one year of funding they provide to um, people who just finished their PhD. 
Um, so hopefully, if it all goes well in the interview, I'll still be around next year. Okay, and uh, continue to work with you on, on open science and open research. So yeah, thank you very much. And, thank you. Uh, thank you for having me. Thank you. See you again. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to the Research Culture Uncovered podcast. Please subscribe so you never miss out on our brand new episodes. And if you're enjoying the discussions, give us some love by dropping a five-star rating and written review as it helps other research culturists find us. And please share with a friend and show them how to subscribe. Email us at academicdev at leads.ac.uk. Thanks for listening and here's to you and your research culture.